Judges chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 7 through 31. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. So we'll begin reading at verse 7 of Judges chapter 3. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathayim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his, and his hand prevailed over Cushant Rishathayim. So the land had rest for forty years, and then Othniel the son of Kenaz died. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length, and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, Keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in this cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat, then he had reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then he had went out through the porch, and shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed, and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sarah. And it happened, when he arrived, that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Amen. Well, there are some passages that prim, proper, and overly sanitized modern Christians would like to erase from the Bible. They think they know better than the divine author, and they would like to blot out some of those unsavory situations that we see in redemptive history. 
Certainly people don't like Samson. People like to rip on Samson. And anytime I get a chance, I like to defend Samson. Uh, but there are many passages like the Samson scenario. People just like to gloss over it. And I surmise, and many of the commentators pointed this out, that people don't like the situation with Ehud. They want to erase it. They even suggest that perhaps it's not real, perhaps because of his conniving, perhaps because of all the entrails and excrement that we see, perhaps because it's funny. And and perhaps also, if you're in our more modern context, there's some fat shaming going on here with this one whose name is Eglon. But we must remember that all of Scripture is God-breathed, and all of it teaches us something about our sin, but more importantly, about our God, especially as it pertains to salvation uh, that God brings to an undeserving people. Now remember, that's the main point of the book, this so great salvation. And it's in contrast with the canonization, as Daniel Block says, the degeneracy of Israel into great sin and idolatry. We see the wickedness of Israel as they degenerate, but we see more so, we see uh, what is magnified is the, the deliverance that God brings for his people. Now remember, Israel was supposed to keep the covenant. Israel was supposed to do uh, the laws that were laid down in the book of Deuteronomy. Now with Joshua, it was positive for the most part. Judges, we do see that degeneration. And so we do come to the main cycles. We do come to the main uh, uh, body of the text that goes from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 16, uh, where we start to see the specific judges. And so tonight we do see Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Now the problem I think is very clear, and I think we see this uh, with the humorous situation with Ehud, And that's how filthy sin is. How filthy and wicked and vile idolatry is. Israel has engaged in wickedness. They've trampled on the goodness of God. But they also haven't learned from the judgment of God. They scoff at his goodness and they don't learn from the uh, the anger and the manifestation of that anger against them. And so despite their idolatry, the Lord does still raise up deliverers for them. And so the Lord does show us by irony and humor just how filthy our sin is. And that's why the Ehud story is quite fantastic, but that's why prim and proper Christians uh, don't like it. He deceives, he mutilates, there's excrement uh, everywhere. And so it would have been humorous for Israel, but meant to be a lesson for them as well, how wicked and awful sin truly is. But at the same time, there is a comfort that we can glean from that. God saves us from the miry clay, doesn't he? God saves us out of our sin. God saves us out of the muck and mire. And that is one thing that is very clear in the book of Judges. And so as we turn to chapter 3, verses 7 through 31, we now see the specific ways, the specific men God uses to deliver Israel, namely through Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. And each of these men teach us something about salvation. We see the model of salvation, the mire of salvation, and the mystery of salvation. Those are my three points this evening. The model, the mire, and the mystery of salvation. So the model is Othniel, verses 7 through 11. The mire is Ehud, verses 12 through 30. And the mystery is Shamgar in verse 31. So model, mire, and mystery. Let's first look at the model of salvation in verses 7 through 11. And notice we see the judgment of the Lord in verses 7 and 8. Now, if you remember, chapter 2 gives us the summary of the book. Israel engages in idolatry. Israel follows after the Baals and the Asherahs. It was the generation. 
after Joshua, the generations after the elders who were knew Joshua, and it says they did not know the Lord. Not that they never heard of them, but they did not regard him. They did not honor him. They did not glorify the Lord God most high. And so we see the summary of the cycles in chapter 2, and now we get to see some of the specifics. And so in verse 7, this negative formula that comes up a lot in the book. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Remember, Baal is the Canaanite god of fertility and the way in which for a fertile rain and growth and family growth and crop and livestock came about was uh, through uh, uh, Baal uh, copulating with his consorts. So uh, Baal needed to copulate with Asherah in order for, uh, the, the, for a blessing to come upon the people. And so remember, the people tried to egg Baal on. So that's why there is sacred prostitution. That's why there was wickedness going on. Not just actual idolatry uh, and spiritual adultery, but literal adultery and literal fornication for the purpose of getting blessings from Baal. So the people forget the Lord God. They go and serve the Baals and the Asherahs. They go and serve uh, gods that they should not and the gods of the land. And so God brings judgment upon them. Verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against them. And he, Yahweh, sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. The Lord has a righteous anger. The peop- he is a jealous God. The people have violated the covenant. And so God delivers them over. God hands them over. I mean, it sets the stage for later on when God hands the northern kingdom over to Assyria. When God hands the southern kingdom over to Babylon. It was God who does it. God uses four nations. God uses other instruments in his hands for judgment. Now, it's not as though Cushan Rishathayim was wanting to glorify God, but God was using the bloodshed, the, the, the bloodthirstiness of these wicked kings, the power-hungry kings, for his purposes. So Yahweh sells the people of Israel into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And so we see that manifestation. Perhaps one thing it highlights about who he is is that he was a mighty emperor. He's got quite a vast land. He is from the north, and it extends all the way to the Euphrates. So he's got quite a large location. He's spread pretty far, so he is a pretty mighty king. He is a pretty mighty emperor. And so the, uh, that plays an important role, and it's important when we see God deliver the people out of that mighty emperor. God is mighty, God is strong, and God can deliver his people from mighty kings and mighty emperors like Cushan. So he's a mighty emperor, and he's probably a hated emperor. And he's hated by the people of Israel. And perhaps his name, Cushan Rishathayim, Rishathayim means wicked, double wickedness. Cushan of double wickedness. And some, most commentators speculate that it's probably a derogatory term used by the people of Israel. It's what they called him when they're talking about Cushan Rishathayim. Kushan, double wickedness. Davis says there is no reason for this narrative to be humdrum. If Kushan, double wickedness, was an Israelite slam on Kushan, whatever his name was, 
Well, then why not call him that in the sacred record? Surely you can see that God doesn't take away your humor when you belong to his people. See, the Lord, uh, the people of God despise the, the oppressors. The people of God despise these ones. And even in the sacred writings, that language is used when speaking of this emperor that they despised. And remember, they were serving him. Remember, he was oppressing them. And notice it was eight years. How often we can gloss over years in scripture, right? We're reading it, we're tired, it's late at night or early in the morning or whenever or something is, uh, your mind's wandering. We forget to read these portions. Eight years. They were under servitude for eight years. So we should expect them to some degree not like these kings. And so it's kind of funny that God uh, still uses in the sacred writings this sort of dig and slam against Cushan Rishathayim. I do love our Lord in many ways, and I love that he is a real God, and he understands the real problems and needs of God's people. And so, they're sold uh, into slavery, sold into Rusha, to Rushan Rishathayim, but then we see, verse 9, we see these cycles. Remember, it's sod. Sin, oppression, deliverance. There is no repentance. It is oppression. The word here that we see in verse 9, when the children of Israel cried out, it is not the word for turning. It is not the word for repentance. It's the word for crying out in agony. The word for crying out in oppression. The word for crying out in pain, but there is no turning from their sin. That's important. A lot of people think it's sword. We've talked about this. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, but it's not. It's oppression. And the people do not repent. And we see that later on after the judge dies. Well, what happens? They just go back and engage in their own ways. So it's cry out, not turn from. Yet nonetheless, the Lord is still good. The Lord still, even though they do not repent, he raises up a deliverer. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Or to another way to say it is the Lord raised up a savior who would save them. And so he raises up these ones, these specific men, to save his people out of this oppression. So this first one is Othniel. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. We saw him in Joshua 15, and we see him in Joshua chapter 1. We see he's part of the children of the tribe of Judah. Uh, He's part of Caleb. He's with Caleb. He goes and uh, he wins Aksa, and you know that was kind of uh, 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 perplexing. Why was that section there? Probably to highlight the importance of the land. So we know he's a good dude. We know that he is a mighty dude. We know that he is a positive dude because there's nothing negative that is said about him. That's why he's the model. That's why he's the paradigm for the rest of the book. When we're looking for a judge, Othniel is the model, an example uh, that we judge the other judges by. And so he, he's raised up. He's a good guy. Nothing negative about him. But also notice the Lord is with him. Verse 10. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. And so the spirit of the Lord coming upon him is not the same as the saving work of the spirit that happens for all of the Old Testament saints. In Galatians chapter 3 when Paul is ripping the Galatians for for being sucked in possibly by Judaizers, he says, 
Did you start in the spirit and continue in the flesh? That he makes the comparison to Abraham, just as Abraham believed. So the implication is the spirit was at work in the Old Testament in a saving way. It is the same salvation in Christ to come and Christ who has come. And it's uh, uh, in the Old and the New Testaments. So when the spirit of the Lord comes upon these judges, we're not talking about that. It's the special equipping of the Lord that he gives to these men to be able to engage in their task. And so Gil says it moved him to engage in his work of delivering Israel, inspired him with courage, and filled him with every needful gift, qualifying him for it. It seems that uh, further to be the uh, it's, it seems further to be the spirit of counsel and courage, of strength and fortitude of body and mind. So he's equipped for his task. He's equipped to be the savior. He's equipped to deliver the people out of the hand of Cushan Rishathiah. So he's equipped to save, but he's also equipped to judge. So judges would deliver, judges would reprove, judges hopefully would convince concerning sins and hopefully bring some reform uh, uh, and restoration when it comes to right worship in Israel. But the Lord is the one who equips them. Notice the Lord delivers them, or the Lord hands them over. He judges them, but it's the Lord who delivers. I mean, it is Yahweh who does it. It is Yahweh who saves. It is Yahweh who brings about this salvation and deliverance. And the Lord does just that very thing. He went, verse 10, out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathayim. So God saves, God delivers, God provides salvation for the people out of the hand of Cushan double wickedness, or whatever his name is, and there is rest in the land, verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, one thing that's interesting in the Judges cycle, this is pointed out by several of the commentators, is that the first several Judges, the first half of Judges, there's some respite. This is not eternal rest. This is not going to be a perpetual rest. But the rest is rest from warfare. There is some rest that happens with the first several Judges. By the end, there's not. There's no respite. There's just perpetual warfare. There's just perpetual turmoil. There is no rest. That happens. It's another way we see the, the, the degeneration uh, of the people of Israel. Israel tramples on Yahweh's goodness. He gives them rest, and they don't listen when Yahweh chastens. That's how terrible Israel is, isn't it? Yahweh's good. He gives them rest. Yahweh delivers them after he judges them, and yet they still will not listen. And I think all this is meant to teach us, and the whole book is meant to teach us, where our source of salvation lies. It's with Yahweh. We could not, we did not save ourselves. Both the Old and the New Testament clearly teach that man is depraved. The carnal mind is enmity with God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it. The carnal mind cannot submit to God's law. That's why we need regeneration. That's why we need to be born again. And that is the work that God does in the hearts and lives of the people of God. And so Israel is a clear picture of the depravity of man. God is good, God chastens, but Israel doesn't listen. We see the clear picture of how sin blinds and how we need God to open 
our eyes. And one thing that's so fascinating that we've talked about already, they don't repent. They don't seek the Lord. They crowd to the Lord in pain, and yet Yahweh still delivers. God is a gracious God. God is a good God, and salvation comes from Yahweh. Salvation comes from the Lord, and Joshua means Yahweh saves. I mean, Jesus means Yahweh saves. So the source of salvation comes from Yahweh, and Othniel is the model of salvation for the rest of the book. So that's the model of salvation. Let's then look secondly at the mire of salvation in verses 12 through 30. Notice Israel persists in their sin. Othniel dies. They rest for 40 years. But once he dies, verse 12, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so once again, they do evil. And once again, it is the Lord who delivers them into oppression. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord uh, works, the Lord uh, operates through him. And again, uh, he gathers, verse 13, to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek. And they go and they defeat Israel. And notice they take the possession of the city of Palms. Do you know what the city of Palms is? It's Jericho. They've gone and taken Jericho. Remember, that's the first place that Israel took when they crossed over the Jordan. So they have gone and taken Jericho, that first place that was set apart as tribute to the Lord God. And so Israel is handed over into Moab. Now Moab, Ammon, Amalek, that's a lot closer. They're more closer to home than Cushan, Rishathayim. But nonetheless, the people are still sold into captivity and also heavy oppression. That's important. Because the rest of this section really is meant to be humorous, isn't it? And the reason it's meant to be humorous is because you have to understand it in light of the fact that the people of Israel were under oppression for 18 years. Verse 14. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. They want to be out of that. They want to be released from that yoke. And so here is this wicked, fat, blubbering king who's over them. And so now they would snicker as they hear the story about Ehud and Eglon because they want their enemy to be removed. Sometimes, again, I think we can be overly, think we we know better as we read the scriptures. We think we would never do that. We would never think this way. We would never, brethren, we can never say we would never do such things. Uh, The good example is when Hitler came to power, dear brother. And I remember reading this and it was shocking to me. Because we look at Hitler and go, why would anybody want Hitler to be their leader, right? But if you read what went on after World War I and how Germany was treated, you can see why the Germans wanted someone who was pro-Germany. Now, I know there's a lot of other shady things that happened with Hitler. But nonetheless, don't forget, he was voted in. (laughs) He was voted in because there was problems, there was issues financially, runaway inflation, and the Germans were treated like trash. So here comes this guy who says, let's be for Germany. And so what do the people do? Well, they want someone who's for Germany. Again, dear brethren, we don't, we can't, you know, we think we would do things in certain situations. The reality is we have no idea what we would do. 18 years is a long time. And he, ex, he, uh, he um, exacts a heavy tax upon them. So that's why the rest of this ought to make us chuckle as we go through it. And so 
They go are sent into uh, uh, into captivity. They are under oppression. Not into captivity. They are under oppression. They are captive, but they're not sent out of the land. But they're under oppression um, from these uh, these kings. And so the Lord again raises up deliverer. And again, it's when Israel cries out. And again, same thing. It's not repentance. They cry out to the Lord. And again, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. So we have Judah, uh, Othniel, and now we have the uh, Benjamite who will come and be a deliverer for them. And notice, he was the cream of the crop. He was a navy seal. Notice it says, a left-handed man. Probably what that means is, he bound it, he bound his right hand so that he would be ambidextrous. There are, there are mighty men of Benjamin in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, who are 700 select men who are left-handed, who could use a sling stone, everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. If most people were right-handed, even then, most people were right-handed. If you could have someone who could fight with both hands, they had a huge advantage over the enemy. They could do a lot of damage. And so uh, Ehud was such a man. Ehud, again, probably practiced with both. He bound his right hand, is, the, is the, what the, Greek, or the Hebrew word says, and so he could use both. So he was a mighty dude. He was a mighty man. He was a Navy SEAL. And the Lord raises him up, this left-handed man. And so we see how God is going to deliver the people. Again, with Othniel, there's not much. Again, he's the paradigm. But now we get to see some other fun stuff uh, with what happens. And so we see the plan uh, that is uh, be, uh, executed. Well, it starts with the tribute that has to be paid to Eglon. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. They had to pay. They had to bring tax. They had to bring what they uh, had to offer. The, 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 the weaker, the minor, the subdued king a uh, kingdom must pay tribute to the mightier king. So they bring it to Eglon, king of Moab. Moab, And then we see what Ehud is going to do. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length. So only 15 to 18 inches. Need to be small. And then notice, and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Why is it on his right thigh? Because he's left-handed. And if he he were to be patted down by the king's guards, they're going to look for the left thigh because that's where a right-handed person would grab their dagger. So he's going to hide it in the place that they're not going to look. And so he hides it there. He brings tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And I love verse 17. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Again, this is where Israel is snickering. This is where Israel is laughing. The writer does this to humiliate this big, fat, blubbering king. Not just with his blubberiness, but also with his dim-wittedness. We're going to see that they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. It's not just the king, but also his attendants as well. And again, it's it's meant to cause us to laugh. It's meant to cause us to chuckle. It's meant to be a funny sort of thing. And so... They come and they bring tribute to this very fat man. Verse 18, and when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But, verse 19, 
he, that is Ehud, himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal. That's interesting. Why is he mentioning the stone images at Gilgal? Now remember, Gilgal was the place where after the people crossed the Jordan in Genesis, or Genesis, Joshua chapter 4, that they brought the stones and set it up as a monument for a remembrance of what Yahweh had done. The word stone is not there. It's idols. Is it the idols of Moab? Or is it the idols of Israel? I mean, nonetheless, if it's the idols of Moab, they're trampling on the goodness of God by setting up idols there. But if it's the idols of Israel... There, perhaps it's showing a, perhaps a blend of syncretism that has gone on at the place where Yahweh showed his might and power, and yet they are perhaps attributing it to other gods. So Israel's got problems and issues. And so as the children in future times, next generation, were to hear the story of Ehud, hopefully parents were smart enough to pay attention to what is going on. Again, it's all meant to be a lesson for Israel. The humor is meant to be a lesson for Israel, even though it's about the removal of an oppressive tyrant. And so, passes by the stone images there where Gilgal, he says to Eglon, I have a secret message for you, O king. And Eglon, the only thing he says is, quiet! And somehow the attendants interpret this as, we must leave with this one guy. And all who attended him went out from him. And so, so Ehud goes up the stairs. Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Now there's a lot of ink spilt on what this means. Is it referring to a raised throne room? That could, refer, could be what it refers to. Or is it referring to a place where Eglon has to relieve himself in a more private chamber where he has to do his business? I don't know. But in any case, Ehud comes to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber because Eglon can hardly move. He probably has to be rolled up to wherever he needs to go because he's so large. Then Ehud said to him, now it's a divine message. It was a secret message. Now it's a divine message. I have a message from God for you. And that message is divine judgment. That message is the action of the, of the driving of that dagger into his gut and God delivering the people from this wicked man. So then he arose from his seat, wants to know what it is. Is it a further tribute? Is it a further good thing? I don't know. But Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Notice things slow down too. It's meant to be for suspense. It's meant to be for our enjoyment. Even the hilt went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade. He could have just left it there, but yet the Lord God includes that in his word. The fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly. And his entrails came out. Entrails. Extra excrement. This guy is so fat that the, the dagger is hidden and absorbed into him. Again, the people of Israel are laughing. They're thrilled because of all the, uh, the pain and suffering that this man has caused and brought upon them. Yes, Israel brought it upon themselves, but nonetheless, he is the one who still brings pain upon them. And it is possibly the case as well that Eglon, there's, or Eglon, there's wordplay with calf, similar, or wordplay with round. And so the people were getting their laughs that night, uh, the children began their laughs the night their father read this 
uh, to them. But entrails come out again. It's meant to humiliate him. It's meant to highlight the filthiness of him for a specific reason. And so then Ehud went out through the porch. Some suggest, although I don't know if this is the case for sure, he went out the place where, where you relieve yourself. Uh, so that could be possible, or he left another way. But in any case, he left and shut, uh, left the, uh, went out through the porch, shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and locked them. Where are the guards? I don't know. I guess they're on their coffee break, because the humiliation continues. Verse 24. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the, the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his knees in the cool chamber. Again, perhaps probably relieving himself. One way to, one way to take that. And so they waited till they were embarrassed. Oh, he's taking a long time. Hopefully, you know, dinner, you know, it's probably still coming out. And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. They were wondering what's going on. Is everything okay in there? Uh, I, mean, it's, I mean, it is the, one, the way it's read. <laughs> Therefore they took the key and opened them. And there was their master falling dead on the floor. There was. I mean, it's meant to be humorous. It's meant to cause us to laugh. There he was, this wicked, fat, ugly, awful king, falling dead with all his excrement spilling out onto the floor. It is meant to be humiliating. It is meant to show that God is bringing deliverance for the people of God, uh, for his people. And so Ehud escapes, verse 26. They, he, uh, well, they delayed. He passes beyond the stone images and escapes to Sarah. And it happened, he blows the trumpet when he arrives there in the mountains of Ephraim. The children hear this. Uh, they come. He leads them. Verse 28, Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Again, that's key. The Lord has delivered them into your hand. The Lord has saved uh, saved you. The Lord has raised up a deliverer. He is leading me. He's leading us into battle as the Lord has delivered your enemies. That's why we shouldn't freak out about all the details. We shouldn't freak out about why this is included and all the filthiness that is included because the main thing is God delivers. The main thing is God saves and he saves vile people. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. Remember, Moab is on the other side of the Jordan. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. So there is deliverance of the people. There is some unity still to some degree here. And then notice the land had rest for 80 years. So Yahweh does save. And then perhaps the reason... This is included with all its detail is to show the place Yahweh saves from or what he saves us out of, namely filthiness, dear brethren. He does save us out of that miry clay. Again, the humor in all of scripture, it's meant to be funny, we're meant to laugh, but it's meant to teach us something serious. I mean, all the humorous parts of scripture have that thrust to it. How funny it was that the great oppressor was so fat that the blade was absorbed into him. How funny it was that his servants are so dim-witted. Davis says that it is, that it is a very perilous matter to oppress uh, and crush God's people, even if you're a big man like Eglon, for you may well become the butt of one of God's jokes. 
Because that's true, isn't it? He becomes the butt of God's jokes. But even as though it's meant to highlight God's deliverance, there's also, again, that lesson for Israel. How vile sin is. I mean, you have the images at Gilgal. You have the filthiness of, of the excrement being poured out. Israel is no better. Yet Yahweh is good. Yet Yahweh is kind. Yet Yahweh is gracious. But the people of God are vile. The people of God are filthy. That's what sin is. Sin is, uh, sin is filthy. Our own righteousness is called filthy rags for a reason. That's why we need a righteousness that is not our own, that comes in Jesus Christ. And when we see this all again, it's meant to cause us to look to our God all the more and recognize the salvation that he brings. He saves us from our own sin. He saves us from our own muck and mire. He helps us even when we are redeemed, even when we still have remaining corruption. He still helps us as we slog along in the paths of righteousness, as we pass along in the muck of life. God helps us. Sometimes we uh, get ourselves into pickles because of our sins, but sometimes those pickles aren't as big as they could be because God is gracious and because God is kind, because God is good. Sometimes we need the R-rated sections of Scripture to remind us how wicked we have been and how gracious God is. Do we think we know better than God when it comes to his redemptive history and what he includes in his word? Because again, it's meant to teach us good things about God, but how vile sin is. So that's the mire of salvation. Let's then look thoroughly and find the mystery of salvation. This will be the shortest point I've ever had uh, in my entire life. So verse 31. Shamgar, everybody's favorite judge. We're always curious to know who this man Shamgar is. Now, he probably was well known in his time. He is mentioned in chapter 5, verse 6, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath. But the biblical record doesn't include a lot regarding his sal- the salvation he brings. So we have his name, Shamgar. We have where he's possibly from, or who he's part of, or his family line, the son of Anath. Now again, is he Hebrew? <laughs> Bet Hanath is a place in Galilee. It was a place where Canaanites did live, but it was meant to be part of the, uh, the, the, the allotment for Naphtali. So is he a Hebrew, possibly, or is he a Canaanite, son of Hanath? Hanath was a Canaanite goddess, another consort of Baal. So did God deliver by a Canaanite? Did God deliver by someone who is not of Israel? I don't know. But so we know he's the son of Anath. So what does that necessarily mean? Not, we don't necessarily know that, but it could be that God uses a Canaanite. We do know his weapon. He kills 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goat. So that's pretty impressive. Samson uses a donkey's jawbone. And you see a lot of interesting weapons <laughs> uh, in the book of Judges. We have the ox goat. We have the horn. We have the, you know, we have the... Um, we have the jawbone and many others that are escaping me at this time, but an ox goat is one of them. It was meant to be used for an ox to goad it along, right? I mean, it was probably eight feet in length, probably had two ends, one pointy to make sure that ox would move, and then a shovel on the other end. That's what he used to kill these 600 men of the Philistines. So some mystery that surrounds Shemgar, but he also saved Israel. 
He also delivered Israel. I mean, that's the important and, and operative phrase that is there. He also delivered Israel. And I think the point of his inclusion here is to show the different emphases when it comes to the salvation God brings. God can do it in any sort of way and according to his ways. And he does so in mysterious ways. Even with this one Shamgar, who we don't know much about, who functions as a judge for Israel, and he kills 600 men with an ox goat, and he also delivers Israel. Because salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation is out of our wickedness. God saves us from our sins. There is also the fact that Yahweh's salvation is mysterious. I mean, think about it. When you consider how wicked we are, why would, Yahweh, why would anybody love us and save us? When you consider how gracious God is, why would he save us unless it was because it is who he is? And then also when you consider the mystery in the way that God saves. I mean, he uses a, double, you know, a, a left-handed man to jab a dagger through this big fat guy. He uses a Canaanite possibly, and we don't know much about him, to still deliver Israel and protect them and judge them even though they were not seeking God. I think there is a way to draw our attention to God's salvation by way of Christ on the cross. I mean, think about it. I mean, the disciples struggled with the Messiah dying. They struggled with his suffering. They would probably have liked someone who's more like the judges. Now, we do know that the judges are a type of Christ. They are deliverers who point ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, but the people of uh, but Israel in Jesus' time, they would have preferred that. Marching on Rome with, you know, double-edged swords and stabbing fat guys and, you know, shooting things. That's what they would have preferred. But Jesus died on the cross. He dry, died on that Roman implement of torture, that Roman implement of punishment. Uh, he died in that way. And we must remember that Othniel, he delivered, but he did not bring lasting deliverance. Ehud delivers, but he does not bring lasting deliverance. And Shamgar delivers, but it is not lasting deliverance. Davis says, No left-handed Savior can break us free from our tyrant, for there is one with nail-scarred hands who can and does. And that's exactly what Christ does upon the cross. That's why in Scripture it is called the mystery revealed. I mean, the mystery revealed. When you look at mystery in the New Testament, it always refers to Jesus Christ and his coming. The mystery revealed is found in him, in his living, in his dying, in his rising again. This is crystal clear in the book of Romans, in that benediction at the end of the book, as he talks about the gospel, as he talks about proclamation. And he says in verses 25 through 27 of Romans 16, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Christ dying is a mystery. Christ coming is a mystery that is revealed. That that is how man has communion with God. 
And it's by way of the foolishness of the cross. It is a great mystery, isn't it? The mystery of salvation. It is a great mystery that Yahweh saves a wretched people, and he did so by way of the Son of God dying upon that cross. Now, Yahweh's salvation is mysterious, but we must remember it is truly glorious. Much like we can gloss over the 8 years, the 80 years, the 40 years, the 18 years, Sometimes when we read Judges, we gloss over that he delivered part a lot, don't we? He delivered them. He raised up a deliverer, and he delivered them. He raised up a deliverer, and he delivered them. And so he delivered Israel. Yahweh really does save his people, and we should never grow tired of hearing that. It should never be ho-hum or humdrum that Christ Jesus came to save his people. From their sins. Brother, may we love this so great salvation, and may the book of Judges teach us and remind us about the salvation that God brings. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your so great salvation, and thank you for the deliverance that you have brought to your people. Thank you for what we read in the book of Judges concerning how you delivered them from the hands of oppressors, even though they did not repent. It shows that salvation is of you, salvation comes from you, salvation is by you, and we are thankful that you have saved us. And thank you that you've saved us in the cross of Christ. Thank you that it is foolishness, uh, it is a stumbling block, it is, it is um, uh, a difficult thing, and yet we are thankful that Christ crucified uh, is proclaimed. It is through Christ crucified that sinners are saved, and we are thankful for the mystery of it, and yet we are thankful for the glory of it as well. Please forgive us for forgetting that. Please forgive us for not remembering that salvation that we have. Please forgive us for not being in awe of it as we should. And we pray that as we ponder and consider what we once were, how we were once dead in our sins, help us to ponder what we are now in Christ and help us to ponder that salvation and love it and appreciate it and never grow tired of hearing about it. So thank you for your salvation. Thank you that you've saved us out of our, uh, from our filth. You've washed us in the blood of Christ. And we pray that this would give us the encouragement we need as we go into the world and as we have to deal with difficult things. Help us to know you guide us. Help us to know you deliver us. Help us to know you help us uh, as we slog along in the muck of life. So give us that strength we need. By your spirit, we pray. In the name of